Chapter 7, The City, in which we examine the complex and tragic story of Sodom and Gomorrah to deepen our understanding about what it means to love God. Genesis 18, verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Key lesson. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means we seek justice. We live right. We do what's right. We help set things right. Nice to meet you. I hope you drown. Last December, my good friend James's mother unexpectedly died. She had extreme pain in the middle of the night, and the doctors discovered she had some internal bleeding, and the surgeons fixed it. But the physical trauma was too much. She died less than 12 hours later. I flew out to Texas to be with James and his family, who have been family friends of ours for almost two decades now. After the funeral, there was a reception at his house, and the family had some food catered by an amazing local Mexican restaurant. James's house was packed with folks offering condolences and coming by to pay their respects. And because James is a local pastor, many of the folks were Christian, really awesome people. Well, almost all of them, except for this one gaggle of women. I ran into the small group of three ladies in the kitchen, in line around the buffet chafing dishes filled with beans and chips and salsa and enchiladas. It all started off pleasantly enough. How do you know James? One of the women asked me politely. Oh, wow, we've been friends for 20 years now, I said. My wife and I met him before we were even married. Oh, that's great, one of the women said, helping herself to some more chips and salsa. Are you from around this area? No, actually, I flew in yesterday, you know, to be out here. Oh, that's wonderful, another woman said. Where do you live now? In San Jose, California, I said. And that's when the bomb went off. Ugh, no, no, not California, the leader of the pack said. She said this in the same tone you'd use if you found a nest of cockroaches at the bottom of your burrito bowl. You're going to think I'm being hyperbolic in this description, but all of these women all took a step back as though I just announced I was about to vomit. This woman's whole countenance contorted into anger and disgust. It was as though she and California had dated a few years back, but then she discovered California was cheating on her with her best friend. Oh, there's nothing but liberals, she said, aggressively dunking her chips into the salsa. I don't know how you can stand it. I know I couldn't. Well, I mean, I said. Another woman chimed in. Do you know they have a militant gay agenda in the schools? Another woman said, I went to a business convention there once and I got off the plane and you could almost feel the perversion, she said. Feel the perversion was actually the name of my punk rock band in college, I thought about saying, but I didn't. I began to wonder if I was even needed for this conversation. I hope there's an earthquake and the whole state just drops off into the ocean, the woman said. Good riddance. She and the other ladies grabbed some food, turned, and walked away. And that was the end of that. Nice to meet you, too, I said after them cheerily. Charming, James's father said under his breath as he stood next to me. Literally, 
no reason. A while ago, my friend Liz was down in Southern California. She's an ambassador for Compassion International and was speaking to a large church. And afterwards, a man and his wife came up to her who recognized her. You're from Westgate Church, aren't you? The man said, brightly and cheerily. Yes, yes, I am, Liz said. We used to go to Westgate, the woman said. Oh, that's so great, Liz responded. Yeah, we moved down here about, gosh, what's it been, about two years now? The man said. How's the adjustment going, Liz asked, being the polite conversationalist that she is. Oh, it's amazing, the woman said. The schools here are amazing. You can get two, three times the house for the price, and there aren't homeless people everywhere. It's just so much more conservative. Everyone goes to church and shares our values, you know? It's just so refreshing, you know? Oh, Liz said. You should move down here, the man said. There's literally no reason to stay in San Jose. Literally no reason. In these divided United States, look, I get the tension. Living around people who believe things that are very different than you is challenging, especially if those people behave in ways that violate your own most deeply held beliefs. One of the first letters that Paul wrote was the book of 1 Thessalonians. And even in that book, Paul mentions that the surrounding culture didn't like the early Christians in Thessalonica very much. This isn't new. It's a tension that's caused by holding deeply personal religious convictions and also living in the middle of a culture filled with people who do not share your basic religious beliefs or your views about reality. Heck, for some people, it's not even about their culture. People in their own family of origin don't share their most deeply held beliefs. And if our default setting as humans is tribal to identify who our people are, then it's only natural we want to cloister off with just those people who are just like us. But is that the correct response? I think the story of Abraham actually shows us a very different path. Third time's the charm. Genesis 18 contains a record of Abraham's third face-to-face conversation with God. This one is different than the other two. But before we get into that, let's recap the story briefly. So. God and two angels have shown up at Abraham's camp in Mamre, appearing as men. Abraham offers them water, shade, and a meal, revealing the humble heart of service and loyalty to God. God's about to leave, but then he pauses, deciding to reveal to Abraham his plans. These plans are related to Siddiquan Mishpat. God shares them because Abraham is, like God, a person of Siddiquan Mishpat. God affirms that Abraham's life of Siddiquan Mishpat are the part of the way of the Lord and that part of Abraham's mission is to teach his descendants this. God affirms that Abraham is going to be a blessing to the nations, and part of that mission is to have the ethical character of God and practice Siddiquan Mishpat. Then God reveals why he's on the move. God tells Abraham he's going to the city of Sodom because a great cry of injustice from the people there has reached his ears. The city, Sodom and Gomorrah, is violating in profound and tragic ways Siddiquan Mishpat. God's investigating whether it's true. God turns to go, and then Abraham speaks up. This is a tense moment. Because we are astute readers, we know what happens when God finds a people group overrun by wickedness. We saw that play out in the story of Noah in Genesis 6. We know that God confronts this kind of evil head on, refusing to let that infection of wickedness spread out any further. God, because he is a God of Siddiquan Mishpat, brings judgment, which in the case of Noah, we know is destruction. 
total destruction. In the words of Mike Ehrmantraut, no half measures. What happens next is Abraham's third conversation with God. It's long, and I'm going to read it here, and I want us to pay attention to the whole thing because it's exceptional. Genesis 18, starting in verse 22. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, Abraham spoke to the Lord. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Okay, some things worth paying attention to here. One, the focus of this third conversation is entirely different. The first two times Abraham speaks to God, the topic of conversation is himself and his own future. Genesis 15, 2 plus Genesis 15, 8 and Genesis 17, 17 are intentional inquiries about his own future, and some attempts to get some clarification. How will I have a child? How will I know? How can I be a father at this old age? All very reasonable questions. We all need some clarification from Google Maps to make sure we're on the right path. But the third time Abraham talks to God, it's something else entirely. Abraham is stepping into God's business, and his concern is not himself or his own future. His focus is on the lives of an entire city of people. Number two, Abraham approaches God very carefully, but he approaches him. In verse 23, the text says that Abraham approached God. Commentators point out that the term approached has legal connotations to it, as if Abraham is making a formal appeal to a judge, which of course he is. There's no doubt in this story that God is the judge, the one with power here. Even though God is obviously omniscient, it seems to me that the reason he shows up in human form is to demonstrate to us, the reader, and to Abraham and to Sodom, that he's there personally to collect real evidence for a verdict so that real justice will be done. Abraham is clearly aware of this. Take note of the humility of his appeal. Twice he recognizes that it's bold to even speak to God in verses 27 and 31. Abraham hyperlinks back to Genesis 1, calling himself nothing but dust and ashes. Abraham is telling God he knows where he comes from and to whom he owes his very life. 
Twice he says, may the Lord not be angry before requesting to speak, a way of Abraham telling God that he recognizes that even approaching God in this way is a behavior worthy of incurring God's anger. This is very self-aware way of showing God that Abraham knows his place and the place of God. This is a masterclass in approaching someone more powerful than you. Abraham is respectful. He's humble. He shows deference and honor. But he's there to make an appeal. Abraham wants something. Insight number three, the first issue at hand is justice. As humans, you and I learn from a young age, usually around junior high, that the purpose of group projects is not only to teach collaborative learning, but also test the very limits of justice and human accountability. There's always some lazy freeloader who gets up to present and clearly has not done the work. There's always someone who has done demonstrably more work than everyone else, and yet everyone gets the same grade. And the number one complaint that cries out from students after a group project is this. It's not fair. In essence, Abraham is arguing the same line of logic with God. Giving everyone in Sodom the same failing grade when there are surely some who, quote, did the work would make God as capricious and unreliable as any other ancient God. There's an ancient poem from Mesopotamia called The Poem of the Righteous Sufferer that's dated to around 1500 B.C., which presents the complaint of a devout man whose world is crushed about him, despite his meticulous attention to the demands of his gods. This man says the gods aren't fair. The poem says, What is good in one's sight is evil for a god. What is bad in one's own mind is good for his god. Who can understand the counsel of the gods in the mists of heaven? The plan of a god is deep waters. Who can comprehend it? Where has befuddled mankind ever learned what a God's conduct is? I want to be clear. Abraham is not saying this. Abraham is not saying, who can possibly know the nature of God? He's saying instead, I know, God, because you've told me and you've shown it, that justice is a high value for you. It's part of your character. You can't violate that now. Abraham assumes, for all the mystery of this God, that God has a defined nature that is reliable so that humankind can at least try to make sense of life. Abraham appeals to God's established virtues of Siddiqah and Mishpat, protesting, will not the judge of all the earth do Mishpat? Perhaps Abraham is thinking about his nephew Lot and his nephew Lot's family. Perhaps there are other people that Abraham knows who do what is right. Regardless, Abraham, appealing to God's character, points out that it would be a violation of justice to destroy those who are righteous along with the wicked. Insight number four, Abraham argues strenuously with God, and we're left to wonder why. From a narrative perspective, the rule of threes applies here, and no, that does not have to do with Steph Curry. The rule of threes states that when an author wants to get a point across in a story, they include the detail three times. As a child, oftentimes the stories we're told use this rule. Goldilocks and the three bears, the three Billy Goats gruff. Jokes use the rule of three structure. A rabbi, a priest, and Britney Spears walk into a bar. Famous orators use this principle a lot. Abraham Lincoln, in the iconic Gettysburg Address, uses it throughout, ending with the unforgettable phrase that a government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And the biblical writers use the rule too. Peter denies Jesus three times. 
In the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus outlines three people who encounter the man who's been robbed. Heck, even God himself is a rule of three. If the author of this story wanted to make the point that Abraham is lobbying God, we should watch him address God three times. But that's not what happens. The author doubles this number. It's almost silly. The author isn't driving home a point. He's driving it home twice. But why? This goes beyond justice. Yes, Abraham's first appeals to God's sense of justice. But justice would be, let me go down and rescue the righteous people like my nephew Lot, and then you can rain fire down from heaven. That is straightforward enough. But what's a bit more complicated is Abraham's request that an entire city be spared from judgment because of a few dozen people who practice Siddiqa and Mishpat. Here, Abraham is not appealing only to God's justice, but also to God's mercy. Delay the judgment, God. Yes, I know it's deserved, but hold off. Your white-hot anger is warranted, O God, but perhaps you could turn it down just for a bit. Abraham is asking God to delay his righteous act of judgment, to turn down the temperature of his white-hot, fully justified anger. And if God were to ask Abraham, in the words of little John, turn down for what, Abraham's response would be, because of your great mercy. I'm so sorry about that joke. I'm sorry. Please keep listening. I won't do that again. This moment shows Abraham's concern. This encounter between Abraham and God is remarkable for several reasons. Throughout the Bible, other leaders and prophets like Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Moses all pray for cities and nations, but they're almost always for Israel or for Hebrew people. What's unique about Abraham's prayer is not only that it is a prayer for a non-Hebrew community, but that it is for a non-Hebrew community that is committing grave injustices. What is going on here? And this is the most exceptional thing, perhaps, about this story. Despite their clear wickedness, it seems clear that Abraham does not want to see the people of Sodom die and be lost forever. Abraham's already been told by God he's going to be a blessing to all the people in the world in Genesis 12.3. And already he's acting like it. Abraham feels a kinship to these people who are not his people. He feels concerned for the city, which is not his city. This is a progression. In the story of Noah, we saw a great wickedness, but Noah closed the door of his ark. The text gives us no reason to believe he was anything save indifferent to the plight of his fellow human beings. But Abraham? Abraham is different. I love this detail in verse 22, which says, The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. It's a narrative hitch in the story, almost as if Abraham is hesitating along with God. Abraham is conflicted because he has a choice. Do I just let this happen? Is it possible for me to plead the case of Sodom before God Almighty? Or should I just walk away? Sociologists tell us that the default setting of humanity is tribalism. We're driven by it. We want to know what group we're in, what group we belong to, and what the internal and external markers are for our tribe. Abraham, though, is showing us a new model, a selim of God who is not tribal, but simply human. His tribe is humanity. 
He's a priest of sorts, representing all nations, tribes, people, and languages to God, and representing God to all nations, tribes, people, and languages. And maybe this all makes sense. If Abraham is to be a blessing to all peoples, that's tough to do if one group is going to be destroyed by God before Abraham even has a chance to go down there. As the ancient Jewish Talmud says, whoever is merciful to his human beings is without doubt the children of our father Abraham. Whoever is unmerciful to his fellow beings certainly cannot be the children of Abraham our father. Abraham is showing us this right here. But wait, is Abraham trying to change God's mind and heart? Or is Abraham trying to reflect God's heart and mind? At first glance, it really appears as though God's about to smite some fools. And Abraham steps in and stops him. As though Abraham is bargaining with God for the lives of the people in Sodom. But if you listen to the text, you'll see that Abraham is not haggling or bargaining as some people mistakenly think. This is not a back and forth. God does not counteroffer. He simply keeps saying yes. And God does this six times in a row. God lowers the price to whatever Abraham asks over and over and over again, to the point where you wonder why Abraham stopped. If this is haggling, God is absolutely terrible at haggling and should not be trusted to run a booth at a flea market, let alone the universe. No. Something else is going on here. Keep in mind, this episode with Abraham is very early on in the story of the Bible. We, like Abraham, are still learning about the character of God. These verses are in the first third of the very first book of the 66 books that comprise the Bible. Later in the Bible, we find other clear instances of God confronting evil head on. But we also learn that the best way to destroy evil is to have someone repent and turn from their wicked ways. Time after time, God sends messengers, prophets, to places that are behaving badly, urging them, even threatening them, to repent. Check out these verses that show God's heart as I read them. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. First Timothy 2, verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Ezekiel 33. Verse 11, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And then Exodus 34. Verse 5, then the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Here's what's strange. The passages we just listened to clearly show the call to repentance, which is a major and indispensable theme of the prophets. The prophets harp on this idea incessantly, openly lamenting that the people just don't get it, 
calling them blind and deaf and hard of heart. In fact, the doctrine of repentance is so central to Jesus that his first public sermon starts with the words, repent. That's in Matthew 4. But this great theme is not to be found in the stories of Noah or of Sodom. Why? I wonder why that is. Perhaps it's because before a message of repentance can be sent to a people, there has to be a messenger. Someone has to go. Sure, God could do it or he could send an angel. But this is also a chance for God to reveal to Abraham that part of being God's selim is having a heart that wants people not to perish. Because that's also the heart of God himself. Sure, a prophet can speak words, but it's the prophet's heart that also matters. If a prophet's a representative of God, his heart needs to care like God's heart cares. Fast forward to Jesus. To drive home this point that God not only himself cares about the world, but also wants his image bearers, his selim, to do this as well, I want to turn to one of the most famous teachings of Jesus and one of the most famous stories in the entire Bible. In Luke 10, we see a man approach Jesus and ask him a question. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. In this moment, Jesus affirms the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, and also reaffirms his earlier teaching in Matthew 22 that linked loving God with loving your neighbor. But the man who asked the question asks another clarification question. Luke 10. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? This is a valid question. The ancient world was filled with various forms of tribalism. In a world filled with rising and falling empires and conquered people groups, there were confusing lines between people groups, filled with different subsets of national histories, cultural practices, and religious identities. The man was asking an important question. Who should I love? Who is my neighbor? Jesus' famous response, brilliantly told in the form of a parable, turns the question entirely upside down. And this is when the world gets the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus tells the story of a Jewish man robbed on the road to Jericho, beaten and left for dead. The first two men, devout in their devotion to God, just pass him by. But the third, a Samaritan man, picks up the man, tends to his wounds, and takes him to an inn for care at great personal expense to himself. Jesus ends the story with a direct question. Luke 10, 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus directly challenges the private piety of the Jewish leaders and links loving God with loving your neighbor. But he also challenges the notion of who is worthy of such love. In this story, the Samaritan man extended mercy to a stranger who was different from him in ethnicity, religion, and moral code. And yet the implication here is that this Samaritan practiced Siddiquan Mishpat and is actually a closer representation to the Selim of God specifically because he does this, because that's how a Selim of God acts in the world. Old Testament scholar Carmen Imes puts it this way. She writes, in the covenant community, 
Every part of life is an expression of worship and loyalty to the God who has committed himself to these people. How they treat others reveals their heart toward God. Man, I love that line. How we treat others reveals our heart toward God. In fact, the two negative examples in the story provided by Jesus of the good religious people who passed by the man on the road, in the words of Tom Davis, when it comes to caring for the people on God's heart, indifference is a sin. I find it fascinating that the story of Jesus resonates so strongly that even today, in many cities across the United States, there is a hospital named Good Samaritan. In his famous I've Been to the Mountaintop speech delivered the night before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. preached on this very text, and he put it like this. And so the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? To be a blessing to the nations, you must want to help the nations. You must see their destiny is tied up to yours. You must want to go. And it's clear in this story, Abraham's focus is not merely on himself, but on trying to help and preserve the people of Sodom, even if they didn't deserve it. Why? Because that's what a Selim does. But there's more than one implication to this encounter. This moment shows the redemptive power of a devoted few. Abraham keeps lowering the number of righteous people in his talks with God. Hey, what about 50? Will that save the city? What about 45, 30, 20? Underneath all this is a powerful thought. As Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna wrote, this, quote, assumes that the merit of a minority is powerful enough to overcome the wickedness of the majority. Can a few people devoted to God and practicing Siddhikon Mishpat truly overcome evil? Can they keep the chaos at bay? I'm reminded later in the Bible when Jesus tells his followers that they are the, quote, salt of the earth, and then telling them that they are, quote, the light of the world, using the example of a lamp shining on a stand. I wonder if these metaphors used by Jesus are a key to understanding something. For example, salt's a potent substance. You don't need very much to flavor or preserve meat. It's not a 50-50 beef to salt ratio. That would be gross. It's actually a tiny amount. Likewise, a lamp is small, but it can illuminate an entire room and drive back considerable darkness. In Matthew 13, Jesus says that the work of God here on planet Earth is, quote, like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Okay, so I did the research. You need about three packages of yeast, 2.2 teaspoons, for every five pounds, 17.5 cups, of flour. So, for 60 pounds of flour, that's 210 cups, you would need a little over a half a cup of yeast. That comes out to a one out of 373 ratio by weight of yeast to flour to dough. So, for 60 pounds of flour, you need a half a cup of yeast. Or, put another way, a little bit makes a big difference. Okay, so I'm not implying Jesus meant for that ratio to be used literally, but I told my wife this and she did the math. We live in a county with 2 million people in it, and using the yeast to flour ratio, that means 
that a group of 5,362 truly devoted Christians actively living out their faith, practicing Siddhikon Mishpa in this city, could really change things. Just a few people can make a big difference. A convicting definition. As I was studying the life of Abraham and these beautiful Hebrew words, Siddhikon Mishpat, Gary introduced us to a quote by an eminent Old Testament scholar named Bruce Waltke in his commentary on the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is concerned about wisdom, the way of the Lord, which is the right way to live versus the wrong way to live. Throughout this ancient book of wisdom, the author often juxtaposes the righteous, comparing them to the wicked, the right way versus the wrong way to live. This is how Waltke summarizes those juxtapositions. Listen to what he wrote. Righteous versus wicked. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That quote hit me. That's worth thinking about. That's worth living out. And as we close the story, I am inspired by the way that Abraham steps up, his heart to plead for the city of Sodom. And even though it probably deserves to be hit by an earthquake and fall into the ocean, that's not what Abraham wants. He wants something different. He wants the city and all those inside of it not to perish. He wants them to find life, to find God. I think about that earlier story in the chapter where that couple came up to Liz in Southern California and said, there's not one single good reason to live in San Jose. They were right. There's not one single good reason. There's about two million of them. The tragic finale of the story. Abraham pleads with God and gets that number down to 10 people. If there are even just 10 people inside the city limits who practice Siddhika and Mishpat, the city will be spared and maybe that group can turn things around. Perhaps Abraham was thinking about his nephew Lot and his family. Surely with Lot's faithful influence, there would be at least 10 people in Sodom who practice Siddhika and Mishpat, right? I mean, come on, we got this. But Abraham is wrong. The situation is far worse than we could have imagined. The angels go to the city for a full investigation, and they are assaulted by the people of Sodom. There is a shocking juxtaposition between the hospitality that Abraham showed the angels and the way they are treated in Sodom. Evil abounds. The text says, from the young to the old, they surround Lot's home, they're wanting to sexually assault these visitors. Now, this story is really confusing to me, but a, a few commentaries propose something that helped make sense of this. They said that the horrific act of raping a visitor to the town would be such a staggering violation of the ancient custom of hospitality that news would naturally spread throughout the region, dissuading visitors and settlers from even entering the area. This would allow, the commentators hypothesized, the local people in Sodom to keep their resources to themselves. So, in essence, it's not about a debased sexual appetite alone that's driving this wicked behavior. It's also greed. It's taking as opposed to blessing, which is what Abraham does. Let's continue. There's not one righteous individual here. 
Not a single decent individual can be found in the entire city. The angels are clear, and the verdict is in. God has seen all he needs to see. His judgment will fall on this completely morally bankrupt Canaanite city. God's judgment against this outcry, this horrific violation of Siddiqah and Mishpat, will be total. It will be swift. But there's another tragedy hidden in this story. The evil and corruption of Sodom is so great, it has even corrupted Lot. He's an upright citizen. Elders sat at the city gates, and like Abraham, Lot bows and offers hospitality to the angels. Lot knew what was right. He knew what was wrong. But he's drifted slowly into corruption. He's grown wealthy in Sodom, and the wealth and comfort have pulled his allegiance away from God. He makes a shocking offer of his daughters to the violent men, saying, Look, I've got two daughters who'd never slept with a man. Let, let me bring them out to you, and you can do what you like with them. His words of warning about God's judgment aren't taken seriously by his family. The text says that Lot hesitates even leaving Sodom. Lot is so attached, he must be physically dragged out of the city by the angels. And his wife was so attached to the city that she'd turn back to look, forfeiting her very life. Ultimately, I think the point is, if God had not destroyed Sodom, Sodom would slowly have destroyed Lot. It's a warning about the deadly seduction of sin. There's a poignant moment in the story the next morning. Abraham goes to the same spot overlooking the plains where he had pleaded with God for the sake of the city of Sodom. He looks down in horror and sadness to see it is too late. Genesis 19, verse 27. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before with the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. The town is engulfed. There's no turning things around. There's no repentance. Siddiqa and Mishpat lost. Evil one. The narrative has us standing above the city of Sodom too, staring at it burn with Abraham. He is the hope of blessing for all nations, the one entrusted and enlisted to teach his household the ways of Siddiqah and Mishpat. Abraham stands alone on the top of the plain, alone on the high place. And in a few chapters, he will commit an egregious act that violates Siddiqah and Mishpat by mistreating Hagar and his son. And the other righteous man in the story, his nephew Lot, is even worse. With their city gone and their chances of having children uncertain, Lot's daughters do not trust God. Instead, they take their father into a cave, get him drunk, and have sex with him, hoping they're going to get pregnant. This grave sexual sin illustrated in Sodom plays out again in an equally horrifying way. Yes, sure, Sodom is destroyed, but evil is not. The whole story is so depressing, it's so hopeless. This is not what we want. This is not a good story. The destruction of Sodom reminds me that there's a limit to human endeavors. We cannot create good in the world as much as we want to, as much as we need to. And if we're honest, you and I are sometimes a lot like Lot, enticed and corrupted by the comfortable and lavish ways of a decadent society. Outwardly talking about its sin, but looking back, longingly, and craving the comfort that it gives us. Sometimes you and I are like Abraham, just and right in one moment, brimming with goodness, but then double-minded the next. 
betraying what we just proclaimed were our deepest heart's values, proving that we're nothing more than wildly inconsistent, proving that we're nothing more than hypocritical. And sometimes, at our worst, you and I are like the people of Sodom, wishing and doing harm on others, so that we might keep the spoils of wealth to ourselves. We are inward, refusing to share or care about outsiders. If we're honest, sometimes we secretly want California to drop into the sea. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote about the deeply disturbing duality of humanity in his novel Gulag Archipelago, in which he deals with the brutality of forced labor camps that existed in the Soviet Union under Stalin. In it, he writes these shocking words. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? The prophet Ezekiel, reflecting on the failure of the Israelites to practice Siddiquah and Mishpat, put it this way. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And then in Ezekiel 18, in verse 31, he says, Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. And we're left to stare at the words of God himself, spoken to Ezekiel, to deliver to a fallen, confused, broken, and sinful people who cannot seem to practice Siddiquah Mishpat very well at all. This is a beautiful promise that's almost too painful to hear because it reveals who we really are before God in this world. In Ezekiel 36, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. If we ever want to be people who truly seek justice, we need help. The lesson from Abraham's life is this. Abraham shows us in this moment that loving God means we seek justice. We live right. We do what's right. We help set things right. But if we ever want to be people who truly seek justice, we need God's help. Left to ourselves, we humans cannot muster up enough moral courage to consistently practice Siddiquah Mishpat. We need to be brought home. We need a new heart. We need a new spirit. We need to be cleansed because there's so much ugliness inside of us. We need light because we humans can't seem to generate much here. We need a miracle. We need God to step in. Which brings us to our final story.